Please turn to 1 Samuel 17, to perhaps the most famous story in the Old Testament, David and Goliath. Just a word in advance uh, about the men's breakfast we have coming up. I'm asking all of you men to come February 12th, just be a couple hours in the morning. Um, the elders are concerned about the men in our church. There you go. And we love you. And we want to challenge you, encourage you, um, point out where we see growth. Um, but we want you to come. And uh, you're our brothers. We want you to be there. So please come to that. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you a little insight into my own heart. I'm very concerned that our culture, even outside of our walls, but uh, even a Christian culture, in uh, many ways, um, I think that men view their masculinity based on what the world tells them masculinity, masculinity looks like and not what the Bible says that it looks like. Um, American masculinity isn't the same as biblical masculinity. There, I believe, is some overlap, but I just want to, myself with you, <laughs> be under the Word of God on that morning and have Him teach me, have Him teach you, and just join together, really lock arms and say, let's be men of God for the people of God. So, uh, please, brothers, come to that, okay? All right, First Samuel 17, we've got a lot to do this morning, so here we go. Uh, we'll read the text as we go. Uh, just to give you a heads up, the points are going to come at the end, so don't get nervous. Everything will be okay. Uh, so, for a while, that screen will look like that. Uh, and then at the end, I want to draw out four lessons for us, the people of God in 2022, that come from this passage, 1 Samuel 17. So I'll just kind of read the text, explain it, walk through it. We'll have an understanding of what the, the emphasis is, and then we'll draw some lessons out for ourselves. Uh, the greatest movie ever made, Hoosiers, uh, has, a scene, has a scene in it where... Uh, Right before the state championship game, this little high school, Hickory High School, is going up against the big high school. And uh, just before, in the locker room, the team chaplain reads 1 Samuel 17 to the students, the athletes at Hickory High. Uh, the, the message being there, David, Goliath is out there, let's go defeat him. That's often how this passage is referred to. Uh, you and I are David. There are Goliaths out there. Let's go get them. I don't believe that's the point of 1 Samuel 17. Uh, I do believe that there is some truth to the idea that God's people are the weak in the world, and by faith in God, they can be considered overcomers. So I think that there is some truth to that, but there's a bigger thing going on here. No pun intended. It's a bigger thing going on here, and it's really not as much the contrast between David and Goliath as it is the contrast between David and Saul. David, the brave warrior trusting in the power of God, and Saul, the fearful king who isn't leading his troops into battle knowing that the Lord will give them victory. That's the big contrast in this passage. There is a contrast between David and Goliath. We'll see that. 
But the big contrast, as we've seen in 1 Samuel now, is, is Saul's going off the scene. It'll take him a while to go off the scene. It'll be through the rest of 1 Samuel. He's going off the scene as David comes on the scene. And then as, as that's happening, you're seeing a contrast between the two. And that's shown in this passage. Uh, for us, it gives us the understanding that we should, the people of God at all times, should trust in the living God who brings His people victory. We are to trust in the living God who brings His people victory. So, I'm going to walk through the passage, and I will give you some headings. Again, these won't be on the screen, but I'll give you some headings just so you can kind of hang your thoughts on these. I'll go pretty much paragraph by paragraph, and, and this passage is laid out um, much in the way that an ancient Near East battle story would be laid out. Even extra-biblical sources about battles have these components to them, and that's how the author of 1 Samuel chooses to lay out this this story, this, this, this narrative. He goes through an ancient Near East battle story and all the things that would happen in a battle. So, I'll just point those things out to you as we go through them. First, notice in verses 1 through 3, <coughs> there, is the, there are the geographic details of the battle, the geographic details of the battle. Again, this is how many stories of battle at this time would be written. Start with the geography, chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now, the thing to understand here is there's obviously two armies, one on one mountain, one on another mountain, and a valley between them. Valley would have been a place for a showdown like this. Uh, the thing to know that behind the Philistines, they've got actually a city behind them where they can go and get their provisions, get their food while they're waiting these days for this battle. Israel's got nothing behind them. It's actually why Jesse will send David to bring food to his brothers because they don't have a city behind them they can turn to. The Philistines do, so right away we learn that these two forces are on mountains, there's a valley between them, and we understand that the Philistines have some provisions more readily available than Israel does. Now, verses 4 to 7 describe the warrior's armor, again, a common way of laying out this, this story. Description of a warrior's armor in verses 4 to 7. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, champion meaning one who defeats another person. So it's, it's kind of a focus on a one-on-one -on -one battle. He's one that continues to defeat the other person that he faces. So a champion comes out named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. That's the little chain length things, not postcards and letters, okay? So, he's armed with a, this metal vest, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he, had a bro and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. You're intended to see the immense uh, size of Goliath. The author is trying to bring you into the idea that this man is impressive. And so, since the author is trying to draw a picture for you, I thought I'd bring a Goliath today. So, thank you, Joe Sapko. So, 
nine feet six inches. And know that a, a, a Jewish man at that time would probably not have been as tall as me. I mean, I'm not some here big hulking beast here, but they would have been more just, just above five feet or so. So uh, maybe 10 inches even shorter than I would be, and this is the size of Goliath. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time on giants and their description today, but I will tell you that you can visit Genesis 6 again. We preached on that a few years ago. Genesis 6, the Nephilim came down, this, this, these demons who dwelt with the, the women at that time. There was this kind of mix between demon and, and person. There were giants then that came from that. Uh, the giants are described in Judges. Saul comes from a, I'm sorry, Goliath comes from a place where those people would have been in Gath, okay? So, there's probably some biblical history as to uh, the reason for someone like Goliath being the size that he is. Anyway, you're meant to see how big and impressive this man is. He's a warrior. Uh, we also learn that his armor is, in, in today's measurements, in our understanding of the measurements, 126 pounds of armor. 126 pounds of armor. The spearhead, like a weaver's beam, like this, this long thing that you would, that you would put you know, thread on that this long beam, this giant beam, had a head on it, the head itself, not, not even the whole beam, the head itself, the javelin, 15 to 16 pounds, all right? So, th this is an impressive man, a strong man, a, an intimidating man, and this is the one set before us. He's the champion here. Then we see in verses 8 to 11, a pre-battle taunt, which would have been popular, it, this is the talking trash of the day, a pre-battle taunt, and the challenge of a single combatant. So, oftentimes when armies would be around similar size, they would agree to it that they would each pick a single combatant, and whoever won that battle among the two, that side would win. This, this is unlike what we're used to in terms of war, but this is what often would happen when two armies were of similar size. So, verses 8 to 11 read as follows, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Aha, Saul comes up again. And notice what we learn about Saul. Saul and all the people following him are dismayed and greatly afraid. Again, we've been seeing the downfall of Saul, the poor leadership of Saul, and again we see it here as Goliath comes on the scene. But then we're introduced to David. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of, ben of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. 
For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So we're introduced to David again, and we're introduced to him like we were in the last chapter in contrast to his brothers. So there are three older brothers. There were more older brothers, but we're focused on the first three older brothers. They're at war. They're at least over 20 years old. So they're at war. We're introduced to Eliab again, his oldest brother, who Samuel thought, surely this guy is going to be the king. I mean, look at him. God said, no, he's not the king. Don't look on the outward appearances. And so now we've been introduced to this great warrior, Goliath. Don't look on the outward appearances. We're reminded of Eliab, the brother of David. Don't look on the outward appearances. Doesn't matter that he's one of the oldest and he's fighting. The hero's yet to come. And we're told that David would go back and forth to feed his father's sheep. And he previously would go back and forth and play for Saul. And now he's brought up again here in this passage. So this, this battle story kind of pauses to introduce this new character. So the battle story is going on. Look where we are, geography. Look at the, the warrior's prowess, his armor, Goliath. Look at the pre-battle taunt and the challenge for one man to fight one man. Look at that. Now, parentheses, let's go look at David for a moment. Let's introduce this shepherd to the reader. So David's introduced, and David starts to hear the taunts and finds out what's going on. Verse 17, and Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Bring back something that lets me know they're still alive. Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host were going out to battle line, the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So evidently, Goliath has announced this taunt and proclaimed this taunt and talked this trash before, but now David hears it. Just a side note that we'll get to down the road. You could study a theology of luggage in 1 Samuel. Remember, we were first introduced to Saul. He was named king, and he was hiding, fearful, in the luggage. David here leaves the luggage and moves forward. He'll do that again later on in 1 Samuel. The author of 1 Samuel, Samuel, it all came as one in the Hebrew Bible. The author of Samuel is trying to show the fearful Saul, brave David, okay? Comes up over and over again in different ways. So David hears Goliath taunting. Now, verses 24 to 26, the men of Israel are talking about the, the award or, or the, the, the spoils that are going to be given to the man who defeats Goliath. So, this would have been a common thing. If someone took Goliath up on his challenge, okay, I'll fight you, the, the, the men of Israel knew that Saul, the king of Israel, would give some sort of reward if he was successful. 
And so this is what we're led into, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter, the king's daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And then David. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. This is, this is rather comical. This is, this is a fifth grader entering into some academic decathlon against a team from MIT or Yale. And saying, so what does the winner of this thing get? <laughs> it's not going to be you. Why are you asking? But the men, well, here's, he's going to get riches. He's going to be free. And he's going to get the, the daughter of the king as a wife. And that's what's happening here. And, and tuck away the word defy. So far, we've heard it a few different times already. Who's the one defying Israel, defying the armies of the living God? That's what David asks. He hears this taunt. He knows that that giant of a man over there is defying the armies of the living God. You can start to see a certain provocation in the heart of David. When God is dishonored, David pays attention. David notices that, and that's what comes out even as he asks this question. Classic older brother then, Eliab, hears David say, so the guy who defeats Goliath, what does he get? classic older brother response. Now Eliab, the elder brother, verse 28, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You're, you're, just, you're just curious. You're just coming down to watch and see. We're, we're, the, we're the four sheep that you're supposed to be in charge of. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? I, mean, I was just asking a question, is what David says. I mean, if, if any of you had, have younger or older siblings, you understand this interaction here, all right? It makes sense to you. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So Eliab, why are you even asking that question, David? You're just curious, you're just getting in the way, where are the sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I'm just asking a question, Eliab. So, so guys, what happens again for the guy who defeats this giant? That's what's happening here. Verse 31, we come back to the, the battle narrative. Now we see the arming of the hero, the arming of the one who's going to go out and fight. Verses 31 to 37, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and sent for him. Hey, King Saul, the, this shepherd boy over here keeps asking about the man who's going to defeat Goliath. We think he's actually offering to go and do this, which would have been something because nobody else was offering. And David, verse 32, said to Saul, this is so good. And David said to Saul, David, not old enough to fight in the battle, shepherd boy, Remember, he's been anointed king over Israel. Saul doesn't know it. It's not even public information. The only people that know it are David's family. So this coming king who will be king one day, who's too young so far to even fight, who doesn't look like a king, 
is the only one that's asking questions and, and implying that he will go and fight this battle. He's the only one. And he has a message for Saul, the audacity of David. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. David's trying to <laughs> teach the king how to lead his troops. Y your men shouldn't be fearful here, says David to Saul. Your servant will go, which means I will go, and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, probably a lion's mane, and struck him and killed him. Your servant, I, David, has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. Again, the, that repeated word. He keeps defying God, keeps defying the armies of God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion. Isn't that interesting? David doesn't say, listen. I'm tougher than I look. I've taken a lion by the mane and I've killed a bear. And I've, it's not I, I, I. He says right here, it's the Lord, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will, and will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Okay then. David knows, here's a lesson for us. It's not one of the ones coming at the end, but there are a lot more that I couldn't get to. Here's one lesson. David knows the faithfulness of God for him in the past will be enough in the future. We have to remember that. Some of you are really concerned about the future, but if you look to your past, God rescued you from your life of sin, and He saved you. He's not just going to stop. Your future is in His hands. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor, Saul's armor, David doesn't have any armor. He's not a warrior. He's not a fighter. So Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go because he had not tested them. It was just not working. He can't move like he should. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. You know what I love about this paragraph? David tried on the armor. D David didn't say, you know what? People are going to know for thousands of years how this story ends. I got this sling. It's going to be this famous story. David wasn't saying in some, you know, bragging way, no, 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 I'll defeat him with this sling. All David knew was he was going to defeat Goliath. He did know that. And so he tried on the armor. Well, I haven't even tested this. This isn't working. And then he just goes out with a sling. So, so he knew God was going to deliver him somehow, some way. And again, I think that's another good word for us. God, I don't know how you're going to care for me as you bring glory to yourself in this situation. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust that you're going to do it. It could be as I wear the armor. It could be as I bring the sling. I don't know, but you're going to do it. You're going to do something. David's confidence is in this God. 
I love that last line of the paragraph, verse 37. I'm sorry, uh, verse 30, uh, 40. Last line of verse 40. His sling was in his hand, then he approached the Philistine. Armor didn't work. I'll bring the sling. It, he's not worried here. Verses 41 to 47, we start to see the movement toward the showdown. Goliath, David, it's, it's, uh, it's the two fighters. The bell rings, round one, and they're circling each other. Uh, that's what this is, the showdown. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. We were told that earlier. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, one of which would have been Dagon. We were introduced to Dagon, the fish god, earlier in 1 Samuel. So my gods are going to defeat you and your gods. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, now stop right here. The words that David says to the Philistine in the original Hebrew, 63 words. The account of David actually striking Goliath dead, 36 words. These words are, are given more weight than even the account of the battle. You're supposed to zero in on what David says to Goliath, okay? Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have, there's our word again, whom you have defied. You're defying the true and living God who is the God of his people, us. You come to me with all this weaponry, I come with him. Verse 46, this day the Lord, who, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Can you imagine just seeing this? I mean, David's voice might not even have changed yet. At this, you know, it's high-pitched. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Okay. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth, here's why, here's why I will defeat you, here's why birds will picket the flesh of all of the army behind you, here's why, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, because the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. That's so good. The, the confidence of David, not in himself, not in his ability to to whip a rock from a sling. Not, that's not what his confidence is in. His confidence is in the fact that his God is for him and his people, and he will oppose the one who's defying him. David knows that. Then verses 48 to 49, the battle. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David running quickly to the battle. This is a brave man. This is, this is what you do when you have the Spirit of God in you. The Spirit of God's on David. We have the Spirit of God. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone, the stone sank into the fo his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Brief two verses. 
David brings the stone out of the sling, slings it. It goes evidently over that giant shield that Goliath had, goes over it, hits him in the forehead, kills him. He's down. He's dead. David was right. Now we see the post-battle celebration, dividing up of the spoils. This is what happens after you defeat the other person's champion. Verses 50 to 54. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. That's mentioned a few different times, isn't it? He had God. (laughs) He had God. So all he needed was a sling and a stone. Prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Remember a few weeks ago I told you that in the book of 1 Samuel, the ones that achieve victory on behalf of God, the ones who trust in God and achieve victory, are the ones with the inferior weaponry? They are. God sees to it that Jonathan and his, his armor bearer can climb up this rocky crag and defeat a group of the Philistines up at the top of the hill. That's not how you handle a battle. That's not good military strategy. They were the ones that had fewer weapons, fewer men, and they won because God is with his people. Here, the, the author is showing us there's no sword in the hand of David. He won with inferior weaponry. And you know what that's pointing to. He had God. And, and God, the, the, the adjective given to God twice in this passage is the living God, the one who intervenes, the one who works for his people. David has inferior weaponry, but he has the living God, the one who intervenes for his people. Verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took a sword and drew it out of his sheath, took his own sword, took, took Goliath's own sword, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. The, the children's Bibles stop earlier. The children's Bible have, you know, the stone and Goliath's forehead, and then he's on the ground. But, but the actual Bible has David cutting off his head. Cuts off his head. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, end of verse 51, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah, with a shout, a common thing they would do after a victory, a common battle shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim, as far as Gath and Ekron. So they go and, and they're, they're killing Philistines as they chase them away, as the Philistines are fleeing. Verse 53, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, just picture, took the head of the Philistine, brought it to Jerusalem, which is where David's going to conquer and set up as the capital of Israel where God is going to reign from, brings it to Jerusalem, puts the head, but he put his armor in his tent. So he puts the, brings the head to Jerusalem. I don't know where he said it. Sets it down in the town square. Here you go. Goes and takes the armor of Goliath away. And remember, there is spoil to be received from this battle. David's going to get some things isn't he? David's going to get the girl. You defeat Goliath, you get Saul's daughter. So, Saul would have known David. So, in in this next paragraph, you're going to hear it and you're going to think, well, why is Saul asking who this is? I mean, he's been playing the harp for him, the lyre for him before. We saw that last week. Yeah, but Saul's asking not so much about David, but about David's family, because Saul's going to unite his daughter to David's family. So, verse 55 
As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. It's so good. Bring the boy to me. Yes? You asked for me, O king? And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to David, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The people of God can always know that their God is a God who fights for them. When it looks dismal, Lord, I don't know how you're going to work. Here's how you finish that sentence, comma, but I know you're the living God and you're my God. That's great faith. And it's hard to have that faith sometimes. But we're introduced to a young man who trusted not in his own ability, but in his God and the God of his people. So I've given you informally some lessons Let's look formally now at four lessons for us. Again, there are probably many more, but I really believe based on how this passage is laid out, we should at least grab onto these four. Um, Here's the first lesson. It's really an exhortation. Be jealous for God's glory. David is provoked because Goliath is bad-mouthing the armies of Israel, which is to bad-mouth God. Again, you remember this from that culture. When you criticized a people group, you were really criticizing their gods. Goliath is criticizing, even invoking a curse on this people and saying, my gods are stronger. And and David can't just let that go by. Well, they're not stronger than our God, but, you know, we don't need to bring that up. No, David's going to say something about it. David is jealous for God's glory. And you know this. We're students of Scripture. We know the rest of Scripture. We know that the greater David is Jesus Christ. Where David failed, Jesus did not. Where David sinned, Jesus did not. The greater David it really echoes a a lyric of a song that David wrote. So Jesus sings or echoes a lyric of a song that David wrote. David wrote a song that said, zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal for your house, God, consumes me. I'm zealous for your house, for your glory. I'm zealous for it. Jesus, we understand from the New Testament, was zealous for the glory of God. Zeal for God's house consumed Jesus. This is how we are to live, to be jealous for God's glory. So I ask you very practically, what do you want for your marriage? I want her to stop doing that. I want him to start doing this. Those are such lower level wants. How about wanting your marriage to preach the gospel and to bring glory to Christ? I want people to see forgiveness coming from our marriage. I want people to see the love of Christ coming from our marriage. I want people to see the Lord's forgiveness coming from our marriage. I want them to see His peace in our marriage. After all, that is what marriage points to, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 31. Are you jealous for the glory of God? 
to be shown in your marriage? Or are you just thinking about what you want more out of the marriage? What do you want for your kids? You, you pray for their spouses. That's great. Those are good prayers. I'm not saying these are bad prayers. Pray for their spouses. Pray for their friends. Ask the Lord, Lord, I pray that my kids would show you off to whoever's watching, to, to their friends and family and spouses when they get older. I pray that they would bring you, they would bring you ascribed glory. You can't add to God's glory, but we can ascribe Him greater glory. We can make Him more known. And so David is zealous for God's glory to be known. I'm going to kill you and everyone's going to know that God's alive. So, so as a father, I want to pray, Lord, I want to raise these boys to where people know that you're alive when they get to see these boys. They see Christ in these boys. Would you put your son on display through my boys' lives? I don't know what that's going to look like, but would you just do that? What do you want out of your church? I want a Bible study that meets this night, this way, goes through this, that's not too long. This, we're such consumers. Lord, would you make Jesus more impressive because we are committed to one another? Would you show people Jesus' righteousness, His love? Would you show His power because we are united together? That's a far cry from, I want this, I want that. Now, we don't say that out loud, but that's how we think all throughout the week. I want this, I want that, I want… Lord, I pray that we would be jealous for you to be glorified through our local church. What do you want for your life? <laughs> what do you want for your life? What do you daydream about? What are you hoping in? Second home? Early retirement? Again, none of these things are necessarily sinful, but that God would give us a jealousy for His glory. God, I want you to be more known because I exist. I want you to be more seen because I'm in this relationship and work at that place. I want you to use me. I've got one life to give to you, and I'm jealous for you to receive glory. So be jealous for God's glory. Second lesson, know that God works through weakness. I've already given this as a lesson to us a couple times before going through 1 Samuel because it keeps coming up. God wants His people to know this. Know that God works through weakness. Again, he tries on the armor, it doesn't work, so he picks up the sling. And, and you think, I mean, if you never knew what the battle was going to look like, what the outcome was going to be, you'd think, oh man, he's not going to win. He wins. The Lord will use anything. I'd encourage you to read later 1 Corinthians 1, 20-31. God prefers to work through weak people. The reason is, when he works through weak people, he gets the glory for it. You ever had the idea, man, if all these celebrities and politicians would just follow God and make him known, then it would change the world. God doesn't do it like that. Because then you say, look at that person. Okay, look at that person. I'm going to be a Christian. I mean, they're the impressive one. No, no, God's the impressive one. God's going to work in weak people to change the world. He picks his world changers, his first 12 world changers, and they're fishermen, ex-zealots, and tax collectors. That's how he does it. 
And if we just had this giant concert, this worldwide event, and the gospel would be preached, it'd change the world. He doesn't normally do it that way. He does it one by one by one by one. That's his normal way. And in doing that, he receives the glory. Know that God works through weakness. And let me say this, because you sometimes hear this in Christian circles. I can't disciple anyone. I can't evangelize anyone. I can't, I can't have kids. I mean, I'm not ready. I'm going to mess it up. I, this, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And we say no to all these commands and good, fruitful things that God gives to us. I can't because I'm just me. I mean, Pastor Andrew, you need to talk to my neighbor. I can't say anything to them. I, I, I mean, I, who am I? That statement seems really humble. It's actually rather arrogant because you are saying, my weakness is greater than God's power. No, it's not. God demonstrates His power in weakness. So, you see David running to the battle. Whatever that looks like for us, is there any way that you're not obeying the Lord because you think you're too weak? Well, then ask the Lord for His strength and run to your battle. Run to the battle, whatever that may be. Isn't the greatest picture of this Jesus Christ? We got Him. We've convinced Pilate to kill Him. He's going to do it. And Jesus is there hanging on a cross. We got Him. And by hanging on the cross, He saves sinners who deserve the same cross. And then He comes out of the tomb three days later. God works through weakness. You can see it first and foremost in the best way in His Son's death and resurrection. Third lesson for us, two more final ones. Third lesson, know that all of God's enemies will fall. Know that all of God's enemies will fall. Verse 49, go back and look at that. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. We've heard that before. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it into the house of their god, Dagon. And Dagon, we're told in 1 Samuel 5, fell face to the ground. Whether it's other gods, people who defy the true and living God, all of them will fall. Every single person will fall. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Jesus must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. No enemy of Jesus ever gets away with being an enemy of Jesus. No one ever gets away with it. He will punish all evildoers. It's important for us to know that. Point number four, lesson number four. Lesson number three was know that all God's enemies will fall. But listen to point number four. Know that Jesus gives victory to the undeserving. Friends, we're all enemies of God. And yet, some of God's enemies have victory. They're not treated as enemies. Know that Jesus gives victory to the undeserving. Let me say it this way. A lot of people will say, see, we're David. Fight your giants. God will win for you. We're not David. Jesus is the greater David. 
we are fearful, sinful, trembling, unresponsive Israel. We're Eliab. We don't do anything. We're not, we're not defeating Satan. We are the army of Israel who didn't do anything. Jesus is the one who came to the ranks, went before us, won the victory, and guess what? Because He won the victory, we're the victors. We win. We are Israel here. We're not David. Jesus is David. We win. I had a friend who was a member at a fancy country club in Southern California, and he would bring me golfing with him sometimes, and I always felt so out of place. I mean, I was a Christian school teacher. That guy directed a famous movie. I mean, I just, walking around the clubhouse and everything, I just felt like I shouldn't be there by myself. You know, I just kind of always wanted to be around Mark. Everyone knew Mark. I'm with Mark. I'm with him. I can be here because I'm with him. I think that's what it's like for us going into heaven, holding on to Christ. I know I don't deserve to be here. I'm with Him. I'm with Him. And in language of John chapter 10 and other places, it's not even as much that we're holding on to Him, that He's holding on to us. He shows His Father His scars, and I died for this one. This is the one you gave me. He's with me. She's with me. The, we, we are victorious because of another. We are the ones who bring sin to the table, bring sin to the battle. And God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. We are not David. Christ is our greater David. Romans 5.19, comparing Adam and Jesus. Adam is our father. Dave led us through the Heidelberg earlier, and we understand where our sin comes from. Adam, we're born in Adam. We're in trouble. We're at enmity with God. Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We are righteous because of Jesus Christ. David was the champion, so Israel became the winners. Jesus is the champion, so we become the winners, the victors. We are the ones who receive the victory. 2 Corinthians 5.21, hear this as if you've never heard it before. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. David won the battle for Israel. Jesus wins the battle for His people. The, the, the emphasis coming out of 1 Samuel 17, when you go home, don't think, I'm going to fight like that. There are some things to see in David and to say, yeah, I, I need to trust more. I do need to. But, but, but recognize this. The reason that you will be victorious when you stand there on the day of judgment and he doesn't cast you into hell but brings you into his presence, the reason you'll be victorious is because of the merit of another. It's the merit of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly and died for the sin of those who didn't and He gives them His righteousness. Jesus is our champion. Jesus leads us home. He's our older brother. The Father has adopted us into His family. So, 
I, I really hope and have been praying that you would receive some gospel encouragement from this. Jesus, the Son of God, the greater David, has died for his people, and therefore they have life and they are victorious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for all the things that we learn from it. Thank you that we can know and we feel weak. You are the living God. You intervene for us. You interrupt situations. You're present. You're alive. And you love your people. So, Father, in response to that, make us more trusting. Make us more brave. Make us more responsive. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.